Well, amen. Good morning, church. Hope you're doing well. If you don't know me, uh, my name's Billy. I get the privilege of being one of the pastors here, and it is a great privilege uh, in that. We are in a series right now called Knowing God. Uh, I hope you have uh, been tuning in online or uh, you've been here on Sunday mornings. It has been an incredible uh, series. I know for me, it has been just very uh, incredible to read through uh, the Bible, not only for myself, but also with my son. And, and as Blake was talking about, just an incredible opportunity to see Christ throughout uh, the Bible. And so I hope you are joining along with us. Uh, one of the things that you're going to see about the Bible as you read through it uh, is that it is a real book, right? It is a real book with real stories with real people. Right, One of the things that I love about God's word is that it doesn't present the best version of somebody, right? It doesn't, it's not like Facebook, it's not like social media where people take pictures of themselves at their best. We get to learn from people that are broken, uh, just like we are, and we get to learn about a good God who shows us real grace, and despite our sin and despite our brokenness, uses us to do incredible things uh, for his glory. And so what I wanna do today is maybe a little bit different. How many of you guys have ever heard the story of Rachel and Leah? Just raise your hand and say, yeah, that's me, I've heard it, I've heard it. I've never preached the story of Rachel and Leah, and so uh, I don't know if, if you'll like the direction I'm taking it, but I feel like it's a pretty cool direction, and I think it'll be helpful for us as a church. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to open up to Genesis chapter 29. Genesis chapter 29, uh, we're going to be uh, in that chapter. Let me pray for us, and uh, we'll jump right in. So Father, we love you. Uh, God, you're so good to us. Father, you're so faithful. God, despite our uh, unfaithfulness even sometimes. Father, you still love us. God, you still grow us. Father, I pray today as we dive into what it looks like uh, in the life of Jacob, what his brokenness is and what Rachel's brokenness is as a, as a woman, uh, God, that you would teach us, God, that you would show us areas of our life, uh, God, where we're broken. And God, that we wouldn't focus just on our brokenness, but we would see that you are a God uh, that wants to step into that brokenness and heal us from the inside out. So, Father, I pray that this morning. God, would you empower your word through the power of your spirit uh, to transform our hearts and lives. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Amen. So Genesis chapter 29, verses 1 through 30. Uh, Abraham and Isaac was last week. We were in Genesis 22. So uh, we've bounced forward a few chapters. We've now been introduced to a guy by the name of Jacob, who was Isaac's son, right? So we're another generation. We just saw Isaac uh, being sacrificed or almost sacrificed by his, his dad. Now we're looking at Isaac's son by the name of Jacob. So we are a generation after that. Uh, Jacob. Uh, you probably know the story of Jacob and Esau. How many people know the story of Jacob and Esau? Jacob and Esau are brothers, and uh, basically Jacob's the younger brother. Esau's the older brother. Uh, in these times, the older brother would have received a greater inheritance, and in the, in the, they called it the birthright or the blessing. And uh, we see Jacob, whose name actually means deceiver, uh, deceive his way into getting the birthright and the blessing uh, even as the younger brother. And so that obviously did not make Esau very happy. Esau was very angry uh, because not only did he take uh, the birthright, he also took his blessing from his father. And so in Genesis 29, we pick up with Jacob on the run from his brother Esau going to find a wife, and that's where Rachel and Leah come in. So let's read together. Uh, then Jacob continued on his journey. Again, he's on the run. And he came to the land of the eastern peoples. There he saw a well in the open country with three flocks of sheep lying near it because the flocks were watered from that well. The stone over the mouth of the well was large. When all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone away from their well's mouth and water the sheep. Then they would return the stone to its place over the mouth of the well. So Jacob asked the shepherds, my brothers, where are you from? We're from Haran, they replied. Well, that just so happens where Jacob's trying to go to find a wife. He said to them, do you know Laban, Nahor's grandson? Yes, we know him, they answered. Then Jacob asked them, is he well? Yes, he is, they said. And here comes his daughter, Rachel, with the sheep. Look, he said, the sun is still high and it is not time for the flocks to be gathered. What are the sheep and take them back to the pasture? We can't, they replied, until all the flocks are gathered and the stone has been rolled away from the mouth of the well. Then 
we will water the sheep. It seems like Jacob's trying to clear out the, the, the watering hole, so to speak, because he likes what he sees uh, in Rachel, and he's trying to be the only, uh, he don't want any competition to try to get to her, right? Uh, verse 9, while he was still talking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherd. When Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Uncle Laban, and Laban's sheep, he went over and rolled the stone away from the mouth of the well and watered his uncle's sheep. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and began to weep aloud. Not a normal way to respond to a beautiful woman, but in Jacob's eyes, that's what he wanted to do. Uh, so first, first, first experience is a kiss, and then he began to cry. So verse 12, he had told Rachel that he was a relative of her father, and a son of Rebekah. So she ran and told her father. Again, we see in the Old Testament, you know, they're keeping it in the family, uh, not this frowned upon in today's age, but in their day it was, it was okay uh, because they wanted the Israelite clan to stay uh, together, right? And so if you know anything about the Bible, from the way that Jacob and Rachel meet, you should think back to Isaac and the way Isaac met Rebekah, right? If we think about how Isaac met to Rebekah, uh, he was back at a watering hole. There was a lot of sheep around, and so this would have been uh, nostalgic for Jacob because he probably would have heard his mom and dad's uh, love story many times, and so it kind of was a was a just kind of perfect storm here. Verse thirteen: As soon as Laban, Uncle Laban, heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he hurried to meet him. He embraced him and kissed him and brought him into his home. And there Jacob told him. All these things. And then Laban said to him, you are my family, my own flesh and my own blood. Now we've met Laban earlier, if you've been reading along with us in the book of Genesis, and Laban, though he presents himself as a good man, is not a good man. He's been manipulative every time we've seen him, and we saw him do the same thing with Abraham. He knows that Jacob comes from wealth. He knows that he has two daughters that he wants to get married off, and so he's going to do a little trick here, and uh, Jacob doesn't know anything about it. So verse 19, uh, actually, hold on, verse, uh, where are we at? Verse 14, after Jacob had stayed with him for a whole month, Laban said to him, just because you are a relative of mine, should you work for me for nothing? Of course not. We all want to get paid, right? Tell me what your wages should be. Now, Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. We've already met Rachel. We know Rachel's beautiful. Jacob tries to show off for her, kisses her, rolls the stone away by himself. You know, he's showing off. But now we're introduced to Leah. And now here's the description of Leah. Verse 17. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Okay, so we, no, nobody really knows what weak eyes mean. Uh, we can assume that because it's contrasted against a lovely figure and beautiful, that it means that Leah wasn't as beautiful and didn't have as lovely of a figure as Rachel. Some people have said it means a lazy eye. There's other people that say all kinds of things. But you can imagine, Leah was not as attractive as Rachel. We can also learn from this uh, because uh, we can learn how to talk to our own wife, right? So I'm trying to give you some brownie points this morning. So why don't you turn to your wife and say, baby, you have a lovely figure and you are beautiful, right? So Jacob kind of knew what he was doing when it came to uh, the way he talked to women. He was very honest. Verse 18. Now Jacob was in love with Rachel and he said, I'll work for seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel, all right, that's incredible. He says, I'll give seven years of my life because she's so beautiful and I'm obsessed with her so much that I will, I will work for you for seven years if you will give me your daughter, Rachel. Verse 19, Laban said, it's better that I give her to you than to some other man, so stay here with me. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel and it seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife. My time is completed. I want to make love to her. Uh. All right. So we were thinking Jacob and Rachel was this love story, right? Man, he was so in love with her. She was so beautiful. And he just wanted to, to marry her and have this happy family. But one of the things that we see is Jacob and Rachel is not a love story. 
Jacob is obsessed with Rachel, and it's a lust and a, and, a, and a consumption with wanting to have sex with her that drives his motivation. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that. Verse 22. So Laban brought uh, together all the people of the place, and he gave a feast. But when evening came, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob. And Jacob made love to Leah, and Laban gave his servant Zilpah to his daughter as her attendant. When morning came, there was Leah. So Jacob said to Laban, what is this that you have done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? Right, so we see the deceiver get deceived by Laban, right? And you say, well, how in the world can you have sex with a girl and not know who she is? Well, for them, when they were married, there would have been a huge uh, uh, covering over her head, so he would not have known. There would have been no lights. He would have been in the dark, so it could have happened. Who knows? Leah could have dressed up like Rachel, and, you know, there's all sorts of things to do it. Don't get too caught up in that. But no, Jacob is mad because he was deceived, but what he should be thinking is, I deceived my brother I've deceived my father in the past. God's bringing him face to face with his own sin through Laban. We see this picture in the Bible. Verse 26, what you sow is what you reap. Verse 26, Laban replied, it is not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. All right, so now we see Laban has an agenda and his agenda is I see this guy loves Rachel so much that I'm going to trick him and I'm going to marry off both daughters because this is a family where I want my daughters to be married into. They're rich, they're wealthy, uh, they're good people. Uh, I'm gonna do that. Verse 27, so finish the daughter's bridal week. That's talking about Leah. Then we will give you the younger one also in return for another seven years of work. And Jacob did so. He finished the week with Leah and then Laban gave him his daughter, Rachel, to be his wife, Laban gave his servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel as her attendant. Jacob made love to Rachel also, and his love for Rachel was greater than his love for Leah. And he worked for Laban another seven years. So again, this is more like a reality TV show than it is what we would think of in the Bible. But the important thing to understand is the Bible does not hold back on us, right? The Bible does not present the best version of people to us. The Bible gives us an honest assessment of what people's lives look like, and I believe we can learn from it today. And so I wanna talk to you about three things in this story. I wanna talk to you about a broken man, and I'm gonna name the broken man Jacob, and we're gonna learn from him uh, on the men's side. I wanna talk to you about a broken woman, and uh, I wanna focus more on Leah than I do on Rachel, not that Rachel wasn't broken, but I think we see more in the life of Leah and then I wanna to talk to you about a good God that despite their brokenness shows them grace. And so men, listen up first, a broken man, Jacob. So in order to really understand Jacob, we kinda of have to bounce back and know Jacob's story in the book of Genesis. So in Genesis chapter 25, uh, 22 through 34, we learn a few things about Jacob. You don't have to turn there, I'll tell you what you learn. Uh, one, we see that God's blessing has been on Jacob ever since the beginning. We're introduced to Jacob in his mom's womb, and God has already said uh, there are two nations uh, in your womb that are at war against one another. And the younger or the older will serve the younger. So we see that God's blessing would come and go through the life of Jacob. We didn't know how it was going to come about at that point. Now we know, but we see God's grace on Jacob's life. Uh, we also see that Jacob is Rebecca, his mom's favorite, but not Isaac's. Esau was a hunter, a gatherer. He was a, he was a manly man. Jacob, not so much. He was a deceiver, and, and his dad uh, loved Esau. So you know uh, Jacob would have grown up with tons of daddy problems. He grew up in a house of favoritism where dad always wanted to be with Esau, and mom always wanted to be with Jacob. And so we know that about him. Also, we see that Jacob's name means deceiver. And we see early on that he is a trickster. He is deceitful. He lies. He manipulates to get his way. And we see him do that in Genesis 25 with his brother Esau when he trades. Uh, he makes his brother or doesn't make. He tricks his brother into exchanging his birthright for uh, some food. In Genesis 27, 
we see Jacob lying and deceiving again. Genesis 27, it gets time for Isaac to die, and we see Jacob again manipulate his father the same way he manipulated his brother to get the blessing. And so he dresses up, he hears that his father's about to die, he wants to pray and give his blessing to his oldest son, which is a natural custom, uh, and he says, well, his mom comes to him, she's in it too, you're the favorite, I want you to get the blessing. Hey, why don't you dress up as Esau, take your dad some food, and then he'll give his blessing to you. And so he manipulates that, and of course, Esau is angry, as he should be, and chases him down. So we see this, this, this uh, common theme in the life of Jacob of, of lying and deceiving and, and selfishness to get his own way. And in this chapter, we learn a few more things about him, namely his lust and desire for Rachel. We see this just uh, insatiable desire and lust uh, to have sex with Rachel. And overall, I think we can sum up Jacob's life. That's why I say he was a broken man. And so I don't know how you've ever heard the life of Jacob preached. Uh, I don't know that I've ever heard the brokenness of Jacob preached as much as I've heard that God's favor was on him. And it was on him, but I want us also to see that Jacob was a broken man. And there's a lot for us to learn from him, namely three things. Letter A, uh, Jacob was motivated by selfishness. Jacob's life was consumed with himself. He did what was best for himself. His life was consumed with sin, with lies, with selfishness. He did not care what he had to do or who he had to betray to get what he wanted. He wanted what he wanted. He was stubborn. He was a person that was very driven and motivated by selfishness, even if it involved hurting his family, his friends, whoever. And I want you to understand this because I think we can relate to this. We live in a culture that, that, that brews this in our lives where we can live for selfishness and we can live for ourselves and expect that it's not going to cause issues in our life. But here's the truth I want you to write down. When we are motivated, men specifically and women, but men mainly here, when we are motivated by sin and selfishness, we will hurt those around us. We will always hurt those around us because we won't, we won't be concerned with them. The essence of sin in the Bible is selfishness. Selfishness leads to chaos in our life. It leads to destruction. It's why the gospel transforms us from selfish people into God-seeking people, others-centered. It counts others more significant than ourselves so that we can overcome this power that sin has over us. And for some of us, we're falling into this same trap because it's easy to fall into. Listen, I find myself walking in selfishness all the time and then I come face to face with God in the, in the Bible and I'm thinking, man, I don't love people the way he loves people. I care way more about myself than he cared about himself. He came and sacrificed. His life was characterized by others-centered and, and focusing on God and loving others selflessly. And I think we can learn from that. And so for some of us, we're falling into the same trap and we need to realize that our sin, though it, though it seems like it's not gonna hurt anybody, I'm just doing me and doing what I wanna do, it is going to hurt those around us and it will affect others around us. Secondly, we see that Jacob was driven for power and money. He was driven by power. He was driven by money. Jacob was willing to betray his own family, his own brother, to get a birthright. Now, you got to understand what a birthright is. I know that's not common terminology that we use. Birthright is symbolic of a physical inheritance. Basically, the birthright has to do with like position and it has to do with like wealth, inheritance in that kind of way. So the birthright would have given Jacob, he would have inherited leadership of the family. So he would have kind of been uh, the patriarch or the head of the household, so to speak. Uh, he would have also received a double portion of whatever was passed down, where everyone else would have got a single portion. The, the firstborn with the birthright receives a double portion. And so Jacob would have known this. And so, obviously, when he saw that and knew what the birthright was, his thought was, I want that. I need that inheritance. I need that birthright. And he was willing to hurt others to get it. Again, we see selfishness. We see 
deceit in his life. Jacob was also willing to betray his own father for his father's blessing, to get his blessing. Now we gotta understand what the blessing is. Birthright, blessing are two different things. Birthright, physical inheritance. Uh, blessing would be the spiritual inheritance, right? We saw back in Genesis 12 uh, where Abraham uh, received a promise from God, that blessing that he would bless him and he would make his offspring numerous and he would uh, take care of him and he would curse those that cursed against him and that the blessing would come through him. There was this Isaac's most valuable possession would have been this blessing to hand down to his firstborn son. The blessing of God uh, that he had received from his father's Abraham was a covenant of blessing provision protection, and then blessed offspring. And so again, you see Jacob, he knows this. He knows, man, I could have wealth, I could have power, I could have the blessing of God, I'll do whatever I can do to get it, even if I gotta, gotta betray my own family in order to get it. And Jacob was willing to do whatever it took to obtain both power and money in his family, even if it meant uh, hurting his, his people. And you know, you hear people say this all the time, there's nothing uh, that causes more drama and that causes more hurt in a family than when someone dies and leaves money behind. You ever heard that? And so it, it plays into, it just creates drama when it comes to that. And so Jacob plays into that. It's not like it was just then, it still happens the same today. And Jacob would have had to believe the lie that money and power would bring fulfillment and satisfaction and happiness. A lot like some of us, we look to uh, power and money and influence and inheritance and we think, man, if I just had that, I would be so happy, I would be fulfilled, I could build the life that I wanna build and it would bring about satisfaction and happiness. However, the truth is, money and power promise a fulfillment that they cannot deliver. They always promise something that they can't deliver. That's what sin does. Sin overpromises and under delivers. It's a trap, don't fall into it. Money is one of the most common counterfeit gods there is. Listen, when it takes hold, this love of money takes hold of our heart, it blinds us to what is happening. It controls us through our anxieties and our lust and our desires, and it brings us to put that money ahead of everything else in our life. But it doesn't know, we can't see that from the outside, so to speak, but when the love of money grips in your heart, it begins to, to do all kind of things in your life. This is why the Bible teaches that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, right? Not money is the root of all kinds of evil, but the love of money, right? There's nothing wrong with money, but when our heart begins to crave it and it begins to drive our choices and we begin to put our hope in it, bad things happen. It's why the Bible warns us against greed over and over and over and over again. It's why Jesus talked about money more than he talked about anything else while he was on earth because he knew that money, the love of money, would be the number one competitor for our hearts because it promises control, self-sufficiency, all of these things that we like in our sin nature uh, instead of depending on God. Money promises it, but it cannot deliver what it promises. Nothing destroys families faster than a man who is driven by money and greed. I'm telling you, if I could sit you in front of my week or sit you in front of the majority of counseling opportunities that I get, the thing that causes more chaos in families is a drive to get more and more and more. It's this insatiable desire for more money and more possessions. Do not fall into it because it will lead you somewhere where you don't want to go. But it's not only money that Jacob was interested in, he was also interested in power. Now you say, Billy, power, like I'm not trying to become the president or the king of England, I'm not interested in all of these things, but what is power? A power uh, and a longing for power is really a longing for influence and recognition. Uh, we kind of related a lot in our culture to success. This is someone whose worth or identity stems from power and recognition. This is the person that's driven by success and winning no matter what the cost is. It's characterized, especially if you grew up in sports or um, you lead companies, it's kind of this mindset of like, we're going to the top, we're gonna make it, we're gonna be successful, we're gonna win, I don't care what we have to do, right? There's nothing wrong with winning, I love winning. There's nothing wrong with a desire to be successful, 
But as soon as that desire begins to take over our life so that we can receive recognition and power and we give ourselves over to it, it causes the same issues that the love of money would cause. This is a person, of course, that, that thrives off of fame and recognition, right? It's somebody who is in that win no matter what idea. Many times money and power go hand in hand. Right, This idea of love of money and power go hand in hand because many times the measuring stick of power or success in our lives is money. Right, If we are successful and we are powerful, then we will make more and more money. But again, power and money are promising a fulfillment that they cannot deliver, and it is an absolute trap. How do I know this? Well, let's just talk about statistics. This is why the suicide rate, and drug use is so high among celebrities. Have you ever noticed that? People who have gotten there, they have influence, they have recognition, they have money, but they don't, it's not all that it's cracked up to be. You talk to them, you see them in there. This is why the divorce rate is so high among CEOs and companies, because they've given themselves over to success. There's nothing wrong with growing and being a, a boss in an organization, but when we begin to say, I'm going to the top no matter what it costs, it will cost us everything that God wants for us in some cases. This is why many times children of leaders, of famous leaders, struggle so much. Because your kid doesn't need more possessions. Your kid needs a father. He needs you to love him, to be there with him, to raise him and train him in the way of the Lord. And so we must not fall into this lie that money and power will bring fulfillment and satisfaction. It is a trap. This is why Jesus taught, what good is it to gain the entire world if it causes us to forfeit our soul? It's why Jesus says, don't store up treasures on earth where moss and rust will destroy them. Store up treasures in heaven where they will never be destroyed. He says, focus on eternal things. Be in the world, but don't be of the world. Don't just get in line and begin to follow the ways of the world. Focus on eternal things, namely love God, love other people, make disciples, uh, invest in eternal things. So here's a question for my men. At the end of your life, is what you're living for going to matter? At the end of your life, is what you're chasing after so hard, what's driving all of your decisions, is it gonna matter? Does it have any eternal significance? For much of my life, what I chased did not have any eternal significance. And listen, I was so blind to it that I couldn't even see it. And then God woke me up. I heard a message a lot like this, and I began to question, what am I living for? Because we live in a world that don't even think about where we're going. We think about right now. But God's calling us to look, where are we going? What are we chasing? What is it that we're looking to to give us fulfillment that only God can give us. And then let her see in Jacob, we see that Jacob's life was consumed by lust and sex. So Jacob's pretty much already hit the big trio, right? When it comes to the big trio of sin and what grabs the heart of men, there's three things, money, power, and sex, period. Like that's the trio when it comes to our hearts. How do I know? Because it's the same in my heart, right? It's this idea of not just selfishness, not just power and money, but also lust and sex. From the first sight, Jacob was obsessed with Rachel. Think about it. Men, we're visual. When we see something we want and got to have it, we go after it with all of our heart. Most of us think of Jacob and Rachel and see a sweet love story, but if we read into it, there's not a love story about it. He's obsessed with her, and all he's thinking about is having sex with her. Give me my wife. My time is completed. I want to go into her, is what the Bible says, right? I, I, I kind of PG'd it up for y'all, make love to her, but it's, that's exactly what it says. He was consumed and controlled by lust and desire to have sex with her. And that's exactly what sex does. It consumes our minds. It's all that he thought about. It's all that we think about sometimes if we give ourselves to it. It controlled his actions. Jacob was willing to literally do anything it took to have sex with her. And listen, there's nothing more destructive in our lives than this type of sexual sin. Sex has a power, and God created it this way, but we have twisted it, 
that is unlike any other power, specifically in the life of men. Sexual sin harms everyone involved, harms everyone involved. It gains control over everyone who practices it, and it disrupts God's purpose in our lives. It always has, it always will, not just with Jacob, but with our life. There's nothing more seductive in the life of a man than sexual sin. And I'm not just calling men. I know women struggle with it too, but I'm telling you because I know men, because I am one. It lures you in. Proverbs talks about it. Like a prostitute luring in a man is how it explains sexual sin. This is why sexual immorality is so rampant in our culture. Uh, This is why pornography is a $12 billion industry in our country annually. Think about that, $12 billion. That's a lot of money. This is why the average age of a child that views pornography is 10 years old. Let that break your heart. This is why 70% of Christian church-going men view internet pornography each week. This is why TikTok, Instagram, Snapchat is a pandemic in our youth that is beginning to create this, this lure and seduction into sex. You don't even have to go to a pornography website anymore. You just open up your child's TikTok and look what kids are doing on there. It is pornography. And listen, we are flirting with a giant. And parents, we need to be thinking about that. Men, we need to be thinking about that as we download Snapchat or Instagram or whatever we're choosing to do. This is why everyday families are being destroyed by adultery. This is why sex before marriage is becoming the norm in our culture. Most couples today feel like if they don't have sex before they get married, that that they can't get married. It's like a test drive of the woman or of the man before they can get married. It's completely against God's design. And listen, I'm not against sex. Sex is a good gift from God. Matter of fact, God wants you to have awesome sex. He does. But he wants you to have that sex inside the covenant of marriage. And when it's outside the covenant of marriage, it is fire to be playing with that will destroy it. It's a bomb waiting to go off. But inside the covenant of marriage, it is an incredible picture of the gospel. Think about it. You're fully naked. You're fully exposed. You're fully known by another person and accepted. It comes with a covenant that I will love you and I'm committed myself to you for the rest of my life. It's exactly how God loves you and I. Fully exposed, fully known, but fully accepted. When we take that out of the covenant of marriage, it becomes cheap. It becomes something that doesn't really matter. And it doesn't come with the covenant and the commitment that God designed it to come with. When it comes to sex, God is not a kill joy. He's he's trying to protect you from what is going to really kill your joy. He knows how sex works best. He knows how it doesn't work best because he's the one that designed it. Sex outside of God's design is a bomb waiting to explode and destroy everything it touches. You know, when a bomb explodes, shrapnel goes everywhere. And usually it's not the bomb that kills the people, it's the shrapnel that causes the wounds. That's exactly what sexual immorality does in our life. It's why the Bible gives us one command, one instruction when it comes to sexual immorality. Flee, not be careful, not hey, put some boundaries up in your life, though those are good. It says literally flee, run as fast as you can because it has a power unlike any other sin. It's why it says with pornography, flee. Why it says with adultery, flee. Sex before marriage, flee. Living together before you're married, Flee, it says to run as fast as you can. Notice it says flee, not flirt. We live, in a, we live in a society that likes to flirt with sexual. How far is too far? Hey, Billy, what, what's, what's okay and what's not okay? And I always tell people the same thing. Quit asking, quit asking how to flirt the line and start asking how do I honor God? How do I be above reproach in this area of my life? And I want to get personal for my men in here. You'd say, Billy, this is me. Like, sexual, sexual sin is my struggle. And listen, I've been there. I'm with you. Listen, I fight it every day. And I think every man in here would be honest. They would fight it every day, too. I want to give you some things that I think is helpful when it comes. Obviously, God's the only person that can fix this in our life. 
But the first thing you gotta do is you gotta tell somebody. Listen, you cannot fight sin in the dark. You cannot fight the devil in the dark. And the biggest issue and the biggest struggle that I see with men is when they struggle, they won't tell anybody because there's a shame linked to it. But it's the biggest delusion ever because every man struggles with this. So we gotta find somebody. I'm not saying you gotta stand up at church and confess your sexual sin in front of everybody. I'm just saying you gotta find somebody that you can be honest with. And when I say honest, I mean honest, everything. And say, this is where I'm at. I need somebody to know and I need somebody to walk beside me. We need accountability. We can't fight sin alone. Secondly, we gotta be smart. We gotta put up boundaries in our life. Andy Stanley calls them guardrails, right? We gotta have guardrails in our life that keep us on track with God. If we put ourselves in dumb situations, we will do dumb things, right? Specifically when it comes to sexual sin. So we need to be careful. Listen, Billy Graham, to me, set the standard when it comes to how to live above reproach when it comes to sexual sin. He never got in a car with a woman that wasn't his wife. He never stayed, someone, stayed somewhere alone without somebody with him that was a man. He just didn't put himself in situations that could go wrong. If he walked into a gym and it was him and another girl, you know what he would do? He'd walk right back out. If he was ever in a place where anything could go wrong, he would, not because he didn't trust himself, but because he didn't trust himself. And he's Billy Graham. He would walk out and avoid the temptation. God's given us that ability if we're smart enough. And then lastly, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. You don't overcome sin, specifically sexual sin. Listen, I could take your computer I can put things on your phone to help you fight against it, protect it, but at the end of the day, if God doesn't do a work in your heart, you will find a way to do it. That's how powerful sexual sin is in the life of a man. We gotta look to Jesus because only focusing on him will help us with this. So men, I'm almost done. Let me finish with us. We live in a world where most men are characterized by three things. They're motivated by selfishness, they're driven by power and money, and they're consumed with lust and sex. And I believe God wants us to be different. God doesn't want us to fit in. He wants us to be different, and he's willing to help us be different. But we have to be willing to submit to him. Listen, Jacob was stubborn. You want to talk about an encouraging dude? He was so stubborn that God literally had to come to earth, wrestle him down, and break his hip before he could get his attention. And listen, for a lot of us, we're in this. One of these three things characterizes us. Don't make God come to earth and wrestle you down and break your hip. Listen to the word of God. Hear the word of God. Heed it and find somebody to walk alongside of you. Secondly, a broken woman. Before I get started on Leah, let me give my guys some uh, helpful advice. Whatever I do, Whatever I say, no matter if you're like, man, this pegs my wife or this pegs her perfect, don't look at her, don't say nothing, don't make any sound, don't even glance and smirk. Just let the Spirit do what the Spirit wants to do. This passage teaches us a few things about Leah. Genesis 29, 16. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah. The name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes. But Rachel had a lovely figure and was beautiful. So what do we learn about Leah? One, we learned she wasn't the prettiest girl. She had self-image issues. If you look in the Hebrew, the name Leah actually means cow. Weary cow, wild cow. Now don't think too much into that because Rachel's name meant lamb. So the guy was a shepherd, so but you can see, you still wouldn't want your name to mean cow. She had weak eyes. We don't know exactly what that meant. Maybe a lazy eye, maybe a twitch, whatever, but her eyes, uh, something was going on that was not uh, wanted. Her dad had to trick a guy to get her married, had to dress her up and put her in a room in the dark so that she could be married. You can imagine what this would do to Leah's self-image and self-confidence. This would have been a broken woman who did not have an identity in Christ. Her identity was being shattered by everybody around her. 
On top of that, she had Beyonce as an older sister, right? So if that wasn't enough, she's got Rachel, who's beautiful and has a lovely figure and is attractive and everybody loves her, right? You think of the Brady Bunch, Marsha, Marsha, Marsha is kind of the picture that you see of that. And then finally, we see, and I'll read this, but in the, name, in the way that she names the children that her and Jacob have, we get a glimpse into her heart, the fact that she was looking to a man to love her, to accept her, and to approve her, and to satisfy her. She was looking into a well that would never give her the living water that only God could give. Listen to verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he enabled her to conceive. Again, he loved her and enabled her to conceive, but Rachel remained childless. Leah became pregnant. She gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben. If you're taking notes, write down Reuben. And then right beside it, write this. For she said, it is because the Lord has seen my misery. Surely my husband will love me now. So we see a glimpse into her heart. She's miserable. She's hoping that her husband will love her because she was able to give him a baby. Verse 33, she conceived again. And when she gave birth to a son, she said, because the Lord heard that I am not loved, he gave me this one too. So she named him Simeon. Write Simeon beside it, right. I'm not loved. After she, after she conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, now at last my husband will become attached to me, love me, because I have borne him three sons. So she named him Levi. So write Levi and write attached, or maybe now God will, or Jacob will love me. And then verse 35, she conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, the time, uh, this time I will praise the Lord so she named him Judah, and then she stopped having children. This would be the child that would lead about the bloodline that would lead us to Jesus, right? So we see this picture of in Leah's life, it goes from looking to Jacob, looking to Jacob, looking to Jacob, and then finally with her fourth son, she begins to look to God. Some people believe she was saved in this moment. Reuben, I'm miserable. May my husband... Maybe my husband will love me now. Simeon, the second child, I'm unloved. God felt sorry for me and gave me another child. Levi, maybe now, three sons, my husband will love me. Years and years and years of her life, she spent trying to earn the love and the acceptance of her husband through childbearing. And she was still left miserable, she was left empty, and she was left unloved. But then with Judah, we see a major change. She stops looking to Jacob, and she begins to look to God for love and acceptance and approval. And overall, I think we can see in the life of Leah, and we can sum it up, that she was broken. But obviously, her brokenness looked a lot different than Jacob's. And I see this so many times. The brokenness of men looks way different from the brokenness of women, and the brokenness of women looks way different than the brokenness of men. But in all, we are broken, all of us. And so in Leah's life, we see a few things that characterize her brokenness, namely that she was searching for love in all the wrong places. It's a good song, right? A, Leah's life was filled with comparison. With Rachel being her sister, you can imagine how much Leah would have compared herself and been compared to Rachel. Think about it. She would, she's struggling with self-image and growing up in the same house as Beyonce would definitely not mix very well. Leah probably heard these phrases all the time. You're not pretty enough. Why can't you be more like your sister? I like Rachel more than you. Rachel's better than you. Hey, can you hook me up with your sister? Can I have your sister's phone number? Over and over, she would have probably heard those things. You can imagine that her life was filled with disappointment, with misery, and with self-image issues. And that's exactly what comparison does in the life of a woman. I was talking to Kate about this all weekend and thinking through, like, what have we seen comparison do in the life of women, not only in the Bible, but in our church and in our community? It subtly destroys women. It doesn't seem like a big deal. It kind of hides beneath the surface, but it lures you in one step at a time until literally your life is consumed with wanting to look like someone else, wanting to be like someone else, wanting to have the life that someone else has, and it is a trap that is just luring you in and is gonna lead to destruction. 
The Bible teaches very clearly that comparison is the enemy of contentment. If you wanna be content, which is what God calls us to be in him, then comparison cannot be a part of your life. A life that's lived focused on comparing yourself to others is a life that is never satisfied with what you got, whether it's your appearance, whether it's a house, a car, a job, your clothes, the performance of your children at sports, academically, whatever it is, it all leads to the same place, unfulfilled misery. It just is like a rat race where you just get on and you continue to move forward. We have to understand that God created us, you, woman, female, the way he created you on purpose and your value and worth is through him and not through comparison and what other people think about you. Happiness and fulfillment are not found in things that your neighbor has. They're found in Christ alone. If you're looking at another woman and thinking she's living my dream life, then you're looking to the wrong place. God's dream for us is not that we would have her life or anyone else's life. It's that we would have life in Christ. I challenge you, Psalm 1611 is the pathway to contentment. Memorize it. Psalm 1611, you make known to me the path of life. God has made known to us the path of life. In his presence is fullness of joy. And at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Everything we need, we find in Christ. For some of us, the absolute best thing we could do, I'm gonna be careful, but I'm gonna say it plainly, is get off of social media. Quit listening to the voices of those around us and start listening to the voice of God. Very plainly, get off of your phone and pick up your Bible and begin to allow God to tell you who you are and begin to allow him to define your worth and your identity. Letter B, Leah's life was filled with disappointment. Why? Because she was searching for love in all the wrong places. She was searching for love in Jacob. She was searching for it in marriage. She was searching for it in a baby, in, a, in more babies, in a perfect life, and she never found it. She found rejection. She found emptiness. She found disappointment. Because the type of soul-satisfying love that she was looking for is only found in one place. And this is for men and women both. It's found in Christ. You see, searching for love, approval, and acceptance in places other than God will always lead you to disappointment. St. Augustine, who's a father of our faith, made this quote. It's a very famous quote. You've probably heard it, but it's important and probably good enough to write down. He says, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. You have made me for yourself, O Lord, and my heart is restless until it finds rest in you. Christ is the only place that will give us the rest that we're looking for. I love the process in Leah's life, and I think we can learn from it. You see, every child she has a different message, miserable Maybe he'll love me now. Finally, hopefully he'll love me. But then finally, she turns her eyes to Jesus. And it's an important for us to understand. So here's my question, ladies. Where are you looking for acceptance? Where are you looking for love? Where are you looking for approval? Where are you looking for satisfaction and fulfillment? Are your eyes outward or are your eyes on Christ? Don't look for it in a man. Don't look for it in other women and their opinion of you. Don't look... Don't set yourself up for disappointment. Look for it in the place where we all can find it in Jesus. And then finally, the best part of this story is not the brokenness of Jacob and the brokenness of Leah. It's God in the story. Listen, the Bible is a book about God. We should never read it just for the people, although we will relate to the people. We gotta look for God in the story. Where is God in the story? In this passage, we see it. We see God's grace in Jacob's life. Despite Jacob's brokenness, deceitfulness, and sin, God set his love and grace on him even before he committed the sin. It's the same thing, Romans 5, 8, yet while we were sinners, Christ died. So Christ looks at our life, he sees the brokenness. He doesn't run from it. He doesn't run. He moves towards us in our brokenness. And he says, come, let me help you. Let me show you life as it was meant to have. We see this in the life 
of Jacob. Despite Jacob's deceitfulness and sin, God's love and grace was on him. We see it in Leah's life. God loved Leah when no one else would love her. She looked for love in all the other places, but she could never find it. And she finally found it through a son, Judah, that God used to open up her eyes to the God of grace and the God of love that doesn't love us based on what we bring to the table, that didn't see Leah as disqualified for the love of God, but because of his grace and his mercy and because of Christ, God loves us. Many people ask, why would God send his son Jesus to the cross to die for me? I'm not worth it. Because he loves you. No, Billy, that can't be it. That he, there had to be something about me that he wanted. No, he just loved you. It's the father's love for a, for a son, for a daughter. There's nothing Will, my son, could do to make me not love him anymore or any less. There's nothing my daughter, Sarah Kate, could do to make me love her any less or any more. I love her. And for some of us, the biggest reality and the biggest just perfect picture of the gospel that we need to understand is that God loves us. He sees us, fully knows us, all of our good, all of our bad, and all of our ugly, and he doesn't run from our sin. He runs to our sin, and he shows us that in the cross with Jesus Christ. We see it in the life of Jacob. We see it in the life of Leah. We see it throughout the Bible. Listen, I could tell you story after story. The woman at the well is another picture of Leah. Zacchaeus, who was a tax collector, betrayed his entire family to make money off of him. God came to his tree and called him down. I'm coming to your house tonight. So today, what, I want, what do I want you to take away from this message? One, men, I want us to understand God has a plan for our life. We don't have to fall into the same trap that Jacob fell into. Women, God has a plan for your life. You don't have to fall into the same trap that Leah fell into. And you got a God that loves you. You got a God of grace that's waiting and he's got a plan for your life. So right where you are, I just want you to bow your head. Father, thank you for your word. God, it's so humbling, God, to look into your word and see a picture of myself. But God, you never leave us broken without standing over us with your grace and kneeling down beside us and saying, I'm here, I'm ready. So Father, I pray for the hardened hearts in this room right now, God, that they know the Holy Spirit is convicting them that they're Leah or they're Jacob and that you're waiting. God, would they lay down their walls? God, would they surrender their life? And God, would you lead them into the purpose that you have for their life? God, help us not be stubborn. God, help us be broken. God, help us be surrendered. And God, would you use us to do incredible things for your life? God, if there's somebody in this room right now, you'd say, Billy, I, I don't have a relationship with God. I'm broken, I know that, but I've never experienced the grace of God. And this morning, I've experienced it. And I wanna surrender my life. I wanna put my faith in Christ and what he's done for me. Would you just lift your hand? We'd love to pray with you. We'd love to talk to you and get you some resources. Is that anybody in here? You'd say, Billy, that's me. Today, I wanna surrender my life to Jesus. So, Father, we love you. God, thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen, amen. Thank you for being here. We'll see you back next week.